I hope you guys have had a good time at the uh, conference. It's been a privilege to host and to have all of you here. I know many have come from uh, several hours away, and so it's great that you were able to come up, and it's been a great time having you with us. We're thankful the Lord worked that out, and you were able to come up. New England, New England's almost as pretty as Michigan. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See. It was an instinct. <laughs> it's it's not me. The problem was in you, brother. <laughs> uh, what a great illustration that was that you gave, and how that really just kind of solidified the reality that the issues aren't outside of us. The issues are in... I did what? Your pedestal. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it was, it was it, shattered long ago. Thankfully, it wasn't that, that high of a fall. <laughs> it's not hard to crack. <laughs> it's not hard to crack. No, not hard to crack ice that's really thin. It was a wicked bad. Yeah. Um, in light of, you know, obviously you covered a grand subject, you know, with the whole issue of purity in the life of, of the Christian. Um, you talked a lot about the lustful passions of the heart. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of start off our time by asking you this question. What kind of non-sexual passions are there or that you can kind of help us think through that lay the groundwork for those kinds of things that we can kind of see as a as the beginnings of those temptations that you said you got to stop it right now right what kind of non-sexual things might do that might head that direction yeah that's a great question uh so i would think um part of the tension with uh, so i wouldn't want to give like a one-size-fits-all right i i tried to illustrate with the one with someone who learned to lean on say pornography as an escape mechanism mm. Right, they feel like their life is out of control. This is some something they can control and be satisfied with without having to spend themselves at all. Right, so it's clearly a root of selfish response to to um, whatever they're facing. Right, so like I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm in New England, so no one I'm talking about counseling wise you would have an idea, right? So could be the, the, the young man who grew up with a really, um, you know, maybe a bad relationship with his parents. And, and when he would be getting pounded on, you know, that, that would be his retreat, right? And, and, and he was looking for pleasure because what, I, what I'd say, uh, and I'll, just said it before you to think about, right? So I, I, I quoted portions of Second Corinthians 4, right? Paul says, though our outer man is perishing, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Right? I, I'm convinced that a part of the fight that we have is that we are, um, we're actually conditioned by a culture that says outer man trouble needs to be counterbalanced by outer man pleasure. Right? And then people start to trade away what that is. Mm. I mean, so you had a hard week, so go get drunk. Right? Or you, 
you know, you've had this problem. So go, you know, go chase some girl, right. Or you've, you know, you've, it basically is you're tired or you're frustrated or you're angry. Find some compensating pleasure to balance it out. And so I think that that's sort of down where the root is, right? It's, uh, I mean, I've seen guys, um, I, that I genuinely think the reason they've chased after sexual immorality is rooted in their ego more than their libido. Mm. They like the feeling of the conquest. I'm attractive. I'm desirable, right? I can, I can go chase after these girls and, and they, you know, they give me a feeling like I'm something, right? It's, it's feeding their ego. And so, you know, they don't, they don't recognize unless they get to that, right? They may be just trimming fruit, right? Right. It's bad fruit and needs to be trimmed. But unless they come down to the fact that their arrogance is what's driving this or their escapism is driving this or, or something like that. And so I think there's, there is that, but all those probably have the, you know, the inherent desire for temporal satisfaction to, to, to control our lives. And, and then, I mean, some people, you know, if you shift out of the, you know, if you shift out of this purity thing, it could be some people are, that's, that's why they're driven to pursue money. Right. Right. They think their money will compensate for whatever they, they want to be able to buy things and have things. And that's sort of like the benchmark of what they, they do it. So I, I I mean, at the end of it, all of it comes down to exalting self over God. Uh, each of us probably are susceptible to our our own little twist on that. That's the that's the tension. Okay, if that makes sense. So you're 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 basically saying that it really doesn't, it it really isn't the issue of of a purity issue that's over here and 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 gee, that's the bad issue per se. It's anything that feeds the self, right? And that, and that, and those other things that aren't purity issues or issues of impurity can lead in that direction, right? And that becomes it. So I was thinking maybe of the person who's not having an issue with some kind of pornography issue. What, what's similar? And you've you've answered that. What's similar that drives in that direction? Right. It's just this insatiable desire to serve yourself. Right. And again, it could, I mean, so it could, um, I mean, that's the, that's the, the, the challenge of it, right? So one person, uh, begins to be habitually enslaved to sin X. Another person finds sin X completely unattractive. Yeah. Right. I really have no interest in that. So they're actually pursuing sin Y. Right. right, because that that does have some appeal to them. That that is actually something that um, you know that that there's an enticement for thinking that's going to give me what I want, and and so so it's uh, it doesn't mean that X and Y don't matter. They clearly matter, but a part of it is also going down to so what what's the what's the lustful passion of your heart? Right that you need to, you need to, you know, by the spirit put to death. 
right? You need to, you need to be having your mind transformed because like I said last night, right? The behavior's here, but that behavior is goal oriented and what established the goal was back here in your mind and heart. Right. So what needs to change about my thinking so that I start to have a different value system, a different sense of what, what's important. And, and I think that that's why it's got to, it's got to be a both end and our tendency sometimes, especially if you're enslaved to some visible and ugly sin is to sometimes just focus on that and not do the, the, the full work of, you know, like, like if you send kids out in the yard to pick the weeds and all they're doing is grabbing the leaf, right? Right. It's the, yeah, they pick the weeds, but they're going to be back in no time because you got to get the root. Right. And, and I think sometimes what we have to do is, is take time, not in a psychoanalytical way. It's in a, in a inner person way. The root is in a, it's in the heart. Right. And, and I need to realize that I'm making choices that express the treasures of my heart. And, and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it, they show themselves in sometimes things that could be good. I mean, the guy who just neglects his family to pursue his hobbies because he doesn't want to face, you know, uh, the struggles or the feeling of failure or whatever. He's just, he's just pursued something that looks a little more acceptable, but he's still trying to escape from an outer man sense of perishing by replacing it with, with something else. Now, do you think that in the heart of, of the Christian church individually, where maybe someone isn't, isn't struggling with the weakness of someone else when it comes to impurity, uh, it feeds that whole thing that you were talking about, whereby we start to believe that we please God by our actions. In other words, in a justifying kind of way. They're, they're not doing it. Or I'm, I'm not doing it or right. what they are doing that isn't yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all, I think all of us could be susceptible to self-righteousness, right? We, because we're, we're susceptible to pride. So we can think at times, and especially if we have any kind of pietistic background, right? We can, you know, the, the, the positive side is, like if I get up and I read my Bible and pray today, I'm going to have a blessed day. If I didn't, God's going to, you know, club me with a bat. Right. So we actually start to think our performance is the basis of all of that. And we're just, I'll trade 15 minutes of praying and 15 minutes of reading the Bible to make sure I get blessings today. And, and if I don't, I'm in trouble. That, that's a form of kind of self-righteousness that isn't an act of devotion to God. It's actually some act of, of twisting with God. And we, you know, we're all, we are, I think it's just in the human heart, right? I mean, that's all false religion is based on human works. And the gospel isn't. It's not based on our works. It's based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. So it's possible for us to be like the Pharisee. You know, in the temple praying and saying, I thank you that I'm not like this loser. Right. And and so we have to fight against that. If we really understand the gospel, then we will continually be humbled by our sinfulness and God's graciousness, right? I mean, that 
that that's the case. And, and that's the, that's the, and that really needs to be the place where we engage in this fight. If we, if we think we get victory, we get credit and we're in trouble, right? Cause then we'll start to think we stand and take right. heed as we fall. Right. So it needs to come from a place of humility and dependence and, and recognize that I am what I am by the grace of God. So even if I labor more than others, it's the grace of God that has enabled me to, to labor. Right. Um, you made a comment about um, perseverance. Well, mm-hmm. several comments, frankly. They were good. Um, and I wanted you to maybe kind of piggyback on that a little bit more. You said perseverance is an outworking of faith. Right. Can you elaborate on that a little more than you've already elaborated? Yeah. Without, um, without hitting me. Without hitting you, I won't hit you. <laughs> no, so... so um, I think uh, I think the scriptures are clear that that genuine faith uh, clings to Christ, right? So, so um, I guess the way, like I think it'd be the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith that would say that the mark of true believers is a persevering attachment, right? So. So genuine faith is a persevering attachment to Christ. And that's, that's actually, I think, taking the concepts of the book of Hebrews, right? We hold fast our confession mm-hmm. of faith. We're, you know, we're not of those who shrink back to the destruction of our soul. Right. Right? So if you've actually seen Christ in his glory, right? the glory of God in the face of Christ, you have come to see that he is Lord, and there is no other, no other hope of salvation. Right? I mean, that's right. that he's the only one in whom we can be saved. And that, that faith uh, is a faith that perseveres. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not just a, I mean, like, so you'll get people to say, um, well, I'm going to take it deeper and you want to go. So, but I just think it's, I think it's got, we've got to be thinking that way. That doesn't make it, uh, it's not, it's definitely not a work. It's not meritorious. Right, the ground of our justification is the finished work of Christ. Um, it, it is it is the outworking of regeneration. Right, if God has given new life to the soul, then that soul lives, and that soul lives by faith. Right, right. So there's no there's no. Um, you know, and 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 so what I I think we do have these we have these realities in Scripture that God graciously gives warnings because warnings are a means by which He stimulates faith. Right? I I I I believe God what He says about uh, the coming judgment and the only rescue is in Christ. I believe God about that, so I cling to Christ. Right? He's He's my only hope. In life and death, and and that's the same thing we're talking about with regard to sin. The reason that I would I would uh, by the Spirit seek to put to death the deeds of the body is because I believe that's actually uh, what the mark of a true believer is. Right. Right. That 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 and that's the work of God in the soul, and so so I'm I'm responding to the work of the Spirit. It's not. It's not me 
uh, making myself worthy of salvation. It's me actually responding to the gracious work of God in my heart. Right. I think it's interesting that you, you put it that way, not because I disagree with it in any kind of sense, but because the evangelical church, I believe most who, who are part of the evangelical church think of perseverance as a category that's separate from faith. Right. And they don't think of it as an outworking of faith so that my perseverance is by faith in the things of God, which I think is connected to an understanding of, or lack of understanding on the authority of, of scripture, which you were talking yeah. about. So, so if, we, if we're talking theologically, there, there, there is, there does, there can be a legitimate distinction between perseverance in the faith and perseverance in good works. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, um, that, uh, all genuine believers will persevere in the faith. Um, believers may struggle with perseverance and good works, and God may come I- into their life in discipline. Right. Like, for instance, the, the, the believers in 1 Corinthians 11, some of whom were sick and some of whom sleep, right. were struggling in their perseverance and good works, and the disciplined hand of God was in them to bring them to repentance. Right. Perseverance in the faith is a person won't abandon believing in Jesus. Right? I mean, you can, I mean, I, I've heard some crazy stuff. I mean, I, we're hearing a guy, I actually heard it on, uh, long ago, it was a, on a cassette tape. So, <laughs> but he preached getting saved was like getting on an airplane. Once the door is closed, you're going to get where the airplane is going, whether you want to or not. Right? So you ask Jesus to save you, you're now on the heaven bound airplane and you're going to get there whether you want to get there or not. Because the exercise of faith in that case was simply accepting a gift from Jesus, right? It wasn't actually what the scriptures would talk about. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, right? So the separation of Christ from his benefits has haunted, uh, haunted people in theologically for a more Arminian uh, orientation, the separation of the two basically means you can just sort of pick up the right. the benefit without actually receiving Christ. And, and, and hyper-Calvinism is actually a separation of Christ from his benefits, and you're actually making sure they seem like they're qualified for the benefits before you offer them Christ. Do they show preparatory work? Do they show signs of repentance? Now I can tell them that they can trust Jesus. But the preaching of the gospel is the preaching of Christ, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. We don't just preach the benefits. Hey, you want to go to heaven? Right. It's Christ is your only Savior, right? And if you accept Christ, you, you don't, it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not like a, you know, we like to use these illustrations and, and they have some good, but it's not like flipping a light switch. It's just not, receiving Christ is not, the equivalent of trusting that the lights are going to come on, right? It's actually you're, you're, you have a knowledge of the person and work of Christ as revealed in Scripture and assent to it and unreserved trust in, right? You have actually come to rest in Christ. You've received him. And, and that, that's, um, that's something more than like, well, when you were a kid, I hope I don't break anybody's heart here, but when you were a kid, you believed in Santa Claus and then you got older and found out there wasn't one. Right? What? That's a, 
I just ruined your Christmas. But, <laughs> but you know, that's but there. But like Zane Hodges, that's what he'd say. Like, well, hey, you believed in him when you were a kid. You don't believe in him now. Does that mean you really didn't believe in him? Yeah. That's essentially dropping biblical faith to just a purely human exercise of mental assent or disagreement. Right. And that's not what biblical faith is. It's 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 a gift of God in which we come to know the 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 person and work of Christ through the scriptures and assent or agree to it and put our trust in him. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's not that's not something you like and, you know, you receive him and then go, well, I'm not sure now. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. I mean, it's, it's, it's the work of God in the soul. And what he began, he will continue okay. until the day of Christ. Right. So, And all of that, to say the least of, of which, all of it is in Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter right. 1. In Christ we have these spiritual blessings, right. which includes the Spirit. Right. Whose job it is to change you. Right. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And the new, I mean, the new birth is the work of God and, and it wasn't begun by us. It's not, it's not empowered by us. I mean, it's, it's the work of God. And, um, and so when, when, when I'm saying, Hey, you need to persevere in the face of temptation, right? It is not saying do something different than what God is doing. It's actually, you know, live out what God's put in your heart. You've got to see the importance of Christ and and trust His promises because uh, no amount of technique is going to compensate for a lack of faith and love. Yeah, which which ties into the issue of authority that you had talked about, right? The scriptures right. have to be the authority, right? And we just don't like that in our day, right? Why why is that wrong? Because God said so. But no, no. Why did God say so? I mean, God has to give us an explanation mm-hmm. for his exercise of rule. And and quite honestly, that's very much out of keeping with the way the scriptures work. Right? Right. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he has the right to rule over his people. His rules are good and right. Um, but we have to have a position of submission and trust. Yeah ties into that faith issue. Yeah, we live, we, we certainly live in a society whereby if I don't like the rule, I, I, I'm going to decide whether I want to do it or not. Or, uh, I mean, it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, like, you know, if that's the way God is, that's not my God. Mm -hmm. As if, as if we define the character of God. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, if, if if God's going to condemn people who engage in this kind of activity, that's not the God I want. So effectively, we create God in our own image rather than than us being created in His. All right. Let me just piggyback really quickly on that authority issue in the society in which we live, because obviously we all understand we live in a pretty crazy world at least currently visibly and when we when you study church history or even biblical history we understand that it's not necessarily all that crazy when we really think about it right. in light of how it was back in the ancient days 
but we are dealing with some things in a, in a practical sense that maybe they didn't have to deal with. So <clears throat> I'll just ask this question on the issue because we're covering purity and this kind of covers it with our dealing with society around us. Can you help us give us counsel on, on those who might say they have a same sex attraction um, and that that same-sex attraction, you, you kind of touched on a little bit in, in your thing without using the term same-sex attraction, but where that same-sex attraction isn't inherently uh, sinful. In other words, I'm not carrying it out, but I have the same-sex attraction. And of course, there's been books written by people within evangelicalism of right. the last several years on this issue. Um, <clears throat> how, do you, how do you answer them? So, um, I, obviously you have to, you have to make sure you really understand them, but let's just assume that they're saying that that desire is not sinful. Right. That's my question. And I would say that's separating uh, desire and act in a way that the scriptures will not allow. Jesus says to look at a woman, to lust after her is to have committed the sin. Right. So if a person is, is, has an illicit desire, there is culpability with that illicit desire. Right. And, and, and we, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, certainly not historically have people de- denied this, but even in our day, if you turn around and said, so is greed only the action of stealing? Yeah. Or is it actually considered a sin in itself? <laughs> because covetousness is listed as idolatry, mm-hmm. right? So, so you can have a desire that's sinful. Why, would, why wouldn't the desire for an illicit behavior be sinful? Right. right? And, and so I think... I think um, <clears throat> I, th- I, th- I don't think we should give up that ground at all, right? I mean, we, we need to stand firmly on that because the, the, the diagnosis is important to move toward cure. And when you tell somebody that it's okay to have sinful, illicit desires, don't worry about those as long as you don't act on them, then, then you're actually putting them at the edge of the cliff, right? And, 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 and um, and actually in a position past the boundary line of God's word, right? So they're in a in a position that they shouldn't be in, and but they're also at also at the position of a of, of an even more dangerous and deadly fall, because the trajectory seems to be pretty clear that that the people you know say ten years ago who talked about well, you know the desire is not the sin; it's the action you know, have, have slowly migrated to positions. Well, if they have those desires and they're there because of their nature, then that actually is something given to them by God. And we right. shouldn't be causing them to, you know, feel uh, less than being an image bearer. You know, we need to actually celebrate their uniqueness. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, we can, we can, I think we can recognize there is some weakness at times to slippery slope arguments, but that doesn't mean there aren't actually slippery slopes. Right. Right. I mean, you, you, and, and when you start to pull the thread of biblical authority 
and sexual purity, you ruin the sweater eventually, right? <laughs> and that's and that's what they're doing. Um, and and I think they've honestly, I think they've created a whole category. And this is probably past my ability to speak like terribly fully or dogmatically about it. But um, I think I think contemporary Christianity has been so psychologized that we have embraced concepts of identity as fundamental to human existence in ways that don't bear the weight of scripture. Right. Right. We, we, we actually have in sort of enthroned identity as the way in which life is defined instead of uh, having enthroned the, the rule of God and his revelation. Right. What I feel about myself is not definitive and authoritative. Right. And and um, and we're seeing it right now. The whole transgender thing is I, I just uh, saw uh, a, uh, a graph that was charting the increase in numbers of cases and how it is just absolutely mushrooming because. Uh, the, once it draws attention, it actually starts to be, uh, it starts to feed it. Right. Right. That, that you've got, you've got now this sort of um, engine that's driving the diagnosis and, and people then the conversation starts to change and all of a sudden people are thinking, well, yeah, you know, I need to figure out who I am and, and I've got, and then you, you've got kids that are wrestling with sinful desires, and and all of a sudden, some sinful desire they have becomes their identity, right? And and so, if this is your identity, it's a part of who you are. And if you're going to be authentic, you have to be true to who you are. So you're you're telling me that if this desire is wrong. And it's a part of my identity. You're actually telling me I can't be authentic, right? So the whole standard in the process is the human, not God, right? Right. And that's and I think we're we've just gotten ourselves. Uh, I mean, so it's it's really the the intrusion into uh, soul care and theology of modern psychologies. Right. right, that that it's it's changed the paradigm in a way that has become very man-centered instead of God-centered. That's interesting. You say that. I was I was talking to him on the drive from the airport the other day, and and mentioning a book that I had heard about recently that Dr. MacArthur had mentioned <clears throat> called "The Psychology of Totalitarianism," written by a, a secular writer, secular psychologist, psychotherapist named Matthias. Uh, Desmet, I think it is, Matthias Desmet. Anyway, and his diagnosis, being a secular guy, is that, that the psychology of the mind has now, because we put off God, and he says that in there, we, we don't want to have anything to do with religion in, in the world, right. that this mass, it's almost a mass hypnosis that has taken place where where the the idea of of who we are and our identity has become the ruling thing, even though we know it's not what it should right. be. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's been, it's, uh, I mean, we could, we could get yeah. deep in this, but yeah. I mean, so if you take, uh, you take the whole concept of authenticity, 
right? If somebody means by that non-hypocritical, I'm with you, right? Yeah. Don't, 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 don't put on a false front as to your life, right? right? But, but it's actually psychologized in a way that, that if you're not, uh, if you're not acting consistently with your sort of most immediate responses, mm-hmm. right? Your inner you is restrained in any way, then you're not being authentic. Yep. And it really is, it's the vestiges of Freudianism, right? We've got, you know, id, ego, and superego. Mm-hmm. And, and the id is really sort of like the, you know, the horse and the ego and superego are riding the horse, suppressing it. And you're not going to actually finish dealing with the problems until you, until you get rid of all the ways you've had external constraints on you. Exactly. Right. So you've had to live up to these people's standards and that people's standards. And, and so you've had all these external forces forcing you to live in ways that, that aren't authentic for you. Mm-hmm. So you need to throw those off or peel them away so the real authentic you can be there. Right. And, and all that's done is that's just kept filtering through the system. So, so, you know, I mean, we're talking period, right? All of a sudden the, you know, the guy, the husband or the wife after 25 years of marriage goes, I just feel like I'm faking it. Right. You know, I feel like I'm not being authentic. I want out of the marriage or I found somebody who makes me feel real. Right. I feel authentic with them. What they're really saying is I've been suppressing some urges and suppressing those urges is inauthentic. Authenticity would be that I would act on how I really feel rather than play a game. Right. Same thing is happening with, with the same sex thing. Right. Right. I've got these urges. I have this desire. If I don't live true to that, then I'm being inauthentic. And that's the greatest sin is to be inauthentic. And, and because a lot of Christians have accepted the premises, they're, they're trying to minister to them from a faulty premise. Well, yes, yes, that's true. But, you know, and then they try to band-aid around it right. instead of going, oh, wait a second. You know, here's what the scriptures say. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? Why would you be saying, believe your heart? Exactly. Right? And, and I think we've got we've to, I mean, it's, it, we're, we've been so culturally conditioned to actually speak bluntly what the Bible says can sound shocking to us at this point, right? Because we've, we've been betrayed by the sort of the Trojan horse of these errors inside of Christianized versions of them. And, and um, you know, it's, 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 it's a ticking time bomb on the health of, health of Christendom. I don't think it's a ticking time bomb on the health of any of God's chosen, but it is yeah. a ticking time bomb on our churches yeah. that, that, that the devil has sowed the seeds of this so pervasively through um, those who are ostensibly trying to be helpers in the church. Yeah, that's good. Good stuff. Good to think through. Guys, good stuff to to just be challenged with. We want to open it up to some questions because time is slipping away and I could ask him a lot more questions that would take all that time. And I don't want to do that. 
So if there's questions, raise your hand up. We want to make sure we get a microphone to you because we're recording this. Um, so it'll be on our website. So anybody have any questions? I know some of you did. There we go. We got a few up here. Mark, why don't you come up here? I see those hands. Get one right up here. Thank you. Uh, I had a question where you had mentioned in uh, some of your sermons how there's also like a box inside marriage. You had right. outline, and you said that everything outside this box of marriage is obviously sinful. Uh, I, my question was inside the box of marriage with the husband and the wife, as long as you don't incorporate any other people, whether virtually or actually physically, uh, is there any sort of sexual sin that you would see between a husband and wife in marriage? Right. Um, well, I certainly think First uh, Corinthians seven would suggest that there can be sins of neglect or um, over pursuit. Right. So I think I think there should be tempering of desires and also extending of. So so there can be failures to properly conduct the marriage relationship. Right. I would think anything that involves um, any kind of coercive would not be a di- display of love, right? So if if someone is physically coercing uh, those kinds of things or harming in any way, those would all be, I think, uh, outside the boundaries. Um, I think... I think um, those would probably be the guidelines I'd go with. I would think we should think really careful about the statement in Scripture about that which is against nature. Right? God has made bodies to function a certain way, and generally speaking, everything should be operating the way God made it to function and not be not be operating against that. How's that for euphemistic language? <laughs> All right. That was very so, good. Yeah, so, so I, think we, I think that does play into it. Okay, good. There was, Obviously, you got my drift, so okay, good. Mark, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, back here, and then we'll get up here, Mike. Back there. Hey, Dave, I uh, prefaced this question earlier because I yes. figured more time would be good, but you had mentioned a couple times in uh, your teachings about penance mm-hmm. and i was hoping you could articulate what you mean by penance right. and how that differs from bearing fruit in keeping with repentance or second Corinthians seven eleven kind of language right thanks great question so i was using penance in uh in if i could put it this way in the romanist kind of way right so penance can be defined as self-punishment because of our sins right we've done something wrong so we actually are are penalizing ourselves because of it uh, in order to, to, uh, to accomplish something or can be works that we do to sort of balance out what we did wrong, All right? So you go, you go confess your sin and they say, you need to say 10 Hail Marys or, and, or you need to... So you're actually doing some work that while they probably would be hesitant to describe it this way, is actually some kind of meritorious thing, right? What I'm doing is somehow compensating for my sin, 
right? Bearing fruit of repentance, I don't see in any way connected to the repayment for our sin. Now, let me be clear. If you stole something, like you are supposed to pay it back, right? But that's an issue of justice. That's not an issue of merit with God, right? I mean, I, I took your property. If I really want to be right about it, I'm going to restore your property, right? That, that's not an issue of penance. That's a gauge of whether you're really repentant. Because if I say to you, yeah, I repent of my sin, but I don't want to make it right, that's, that's the question on fruits of repentance. Someone, someone, you know, to, so take it in terms of our conversation. Someone, someone's engaged in an immoral relationship and you confront them and they say, you're right, that's sin. And they go back to bed with the person. You would go, I don't think they really have changed their view of that. Right? Because repentance would be uh, like faith, right? We're, we're persons made in the image of God. So we have mind, emotion, and will. This is going to be my third definition of, I say definition, right? But I'm going to trace it to those, right? Knowledge of the, the person and finished work of Christ is revealed in the scriptures, assent or agreement with it, and unreserved trust in it, mind, emotion, will. Repentance is a change of view, feeling, and resolve about my sin. Right, So repentance doesn't exclude the will. It doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. But if you're actually turning to God for forgiveness from something, you are turning away from something. Right? You turn, turn from dead idols to the true and living God. You, you, genuine repentance doesn't go, hey, I'm going to bring my dead idols with me. Repentance is, those are dead idols. This is the living and true God. Repentance over sexual morality is this is something outside the will of God, which is actually something on which the wrath of God will come, Ephesians 5. So I am turning from it to Christ for the pardon that he has promised me. Penance is going, oh boy, I got to pay for my sin. Right? There's still something to pay for. This is going to cost me these works of penance. And that actually, uh, that actually undercuts the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. We don't pay for our sin at all. Christ paid for it all. All to him we owe, right? But we must have a heart that sees the ugliness of sin, that it is a sin against God, and it is a sin from which we should turn. Right? And, and so repentance is not penance. If that, does that make sense? Okay. Up here. Uh, you talked earlier, uh, I think it was last night's session, about uh, the idea of removing and replacing. Yes. And... Uh, my question is concerning the principle of replacement um, in our dealing with temptations. The, the whole idea of putting off and putting on, right. uh, or to put on Christ. Um, in dealing with sin, most of the time people are focusing too much on escaping their sin and not on replacing. The whole idea is if we continue to just try to get away from it and get away from it, um, 
it becomes uh, like a self-reformation. Right. So I just wanted to know if you could speak any more to about about uh, dealing with replacing habits that are sinful with godly or Christ-like habits. Right. Um, I I agree with you. I think I think we create a vacuum if we don't go from put off to put on. I mean, the way I actually would look at Ephesians four twenty two twenty three and twenty four is put off the old man. Twenty three is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Right. Twenty four is put on. So it's actually replace a remove, renew and replace. So there has to be a change in our thinking about things as well. And that's why in that Ephesians four passage, you actually have explanations like um, uh, put away falsehood, speak truth with one another because they're your neighbor. Right. They're a member of your body. Why shouldn't I lie to them? Because I have a relationship in the body to them, right? So, so I'm supposed to be thinking differently about it. Um, you know, put away wrath, anger, malice, cl- clamor. Be kind, tender, or forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, right? The, the different way of thinking is God has graciously forgiven me through Christ, that's how I should be responding. Not like that, but like this, because of this, right? So, so I think that's a part of what we're talking about. So that would be a part of the question, Mark, is, you know, how, how um, I can't leave a vacuum, right? So how should I be pursuing obedience? How should I be thinking in a way that pursues obedience? Now, I would... Um, so I'm trying to think of a specific example, but let me before I try to do it, hopefully it'll be running in the back of my brain. I do I don't want to dismiss the importance of running from temptation, though. Right? Because I think there's something to be said for fleeing useful lusts, and I don't stand there going, Well, I don't know where to run yet, so I'm not gonna run. So I may actually be running from the temptation, not knowing actually like where I'm running to other than toward obedience, right? Joseph is hightailing it out of the house. He's not going, well, I can't serve Potiphar's wife in this way. How can I find some other way to serve her? Right? He's like, I'm out of here. So there is, there is that kind of stance toward an impending temptation that we could just be saying, I need to run, right? I, I've got to flee youthful lust. I cannot do that. When it comes to habituated patterns, though, then I think that's where we need to be going. So if I, let's say a person, you know, is enmeshed in pornography, right? So there are probably patterns associated with that, right? Time, location, action, all those kinds of things. It isn't enough just to go, I'm going to stop doing that. It's going, okay, I need to fill the gap that this has created. Right, and at the heart of that is exploitation. So I should be turning from that toward something that would actually be serving, edifying, right? Instead of me using things and people for my own gratification, I should be spending and giving. That that would that that would be, I think, the turn of it, if if that makes sense. Um, concretely. You know, I mean, I suppose if a person's been tempted, tempted toward adultery, 
then he, he should be uh, replacing that with cultivating a godly marriage and the right relationship with his wife. Right. He's, he's not just going to go, well, I'm not going to do that, but, and think he just hovers neutrally. He's actually got to replace it with, I need to have my heart oriented toward obedience in this way. So you want to dig in more on that? Is that is that? Uh, you know, I, I pretty much. I think you answered it. I think okay. The, I think the second Peter uh, in one Peter's saying oh. Peter's saying in Second Peter one that things we should add to our faith, right. and part of that is the moral virtue and knowledge right. and self control and perseverance and all yeah. of that. Uh, so those things would be replacing our, our usual habits that. Uh, would be sinful, right? You know, we're to add those things and keep yeah. keep moving and I think, toward godliness. You know, I think sometimes things like the spiritual disciplines have been given a bad rap in this issue because sometimes people have have treated them. You know, like so, somebody comes in and says, "You know, I'm enmeshed in pornography," and the first thing you say is, "Well, have you been having your devotions?" and 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 it can like it can be treated like like well, that's you know that's not really touching the problem. And I and I understand that it should be okay. Let's dig in and 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 work at the depth level. But a part of the issue is what what kind of lack of discipline and giving in to lustful desires. A part of the answer to that is the saying yes to things that you know you're supposed to be doing. Right, I'm supposed to train myself for godliness. So when I don't feel like getting up in the morning and reading my Bible and praying, and I go, you know, God matters to me enough that I really want to hear from him today, and I really want to talk to him, so I'm going to do the thing I don't feel like doing, because it's the right thing to do, right? When I discipline myself to pursue God like that, I'm actually strengthening my spiritual muscles, right? Because I'm not living like a a jellyfish just being you know, moved around by the currents of my life. I'm actually going, no, pursuing godliness is supposed to be a discipline. Train yourself for godliness. So, so I love Jesus. I want to know him better. So, so I'm not going to live by my feelings. And when I make that commitment to not live by my feelings, you know what? When I'm all of a sudden over here and I feel like abandoning purity, there's already some some preceding work being done in my soul that says, wait, 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 don't cave into that. Right? That pathway's away from Christ. Say no to the flesh. Right? And and we just have almost made it sound like it's legalism to say that. But right, what did the grace of God that appear in Titus 2 <laughs> teaching us to deny ungodliness? Right? God's grace says, say no to that. Mm-hmm. And and that same grace is the grace that's disciplining me and helping me grow in Christ. So, so at that at that level, I'd say there's that kind of replace impulsive, lust driven life with principled pursuit of godliness, right? Because that's the platform from which it can be. And sometimes that's why we back ourselves into it, right? It might be, and I mean, I'm just talking about folks that you know interact like. Life gets busy, and they start to just veg out. They're tired. They'd rather sit on the couch and watch TV, and then they end up staying up too late watching TV, and they end up start seeing things they shouldn't see, and the next morning they're too tired to get out of bed to pray and, and read their Bible, and all of a sudden you just run the cycle of this being 
essentially reacting to stuff instead of saying, no, what matters most, right? What, what matters most in my life and how am I turning my heart in the direction that God wants me? Because the, the spiritual disciplines, the way I teach at our church, we, we actually try to disciple people, right? It's, it's putting myself in the place where God has promised his grace. I, might, I said, no, the Bible's not going to come to you. You're going to have to go pick up your Bible. What's the Bible called? Right? Paul says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. Right? I know God's grace is flowing through his word. The spiritual discipline is putting myself in the place where God's grace is operative. Right? What's, what's God's throne? Throne of grace where we find grace and mercy. You know why I discipline myself to pray? Because I want to put myself in the place where God's grace is flowing. He's promised it there, right? And, and in the assembly of God's people, there's supposed to be the exercise of the grace gifts and speaking words of grace. And there's supposed to be this gracious reception of each other. So like, if I just get up on a Sunday morning, I go, man, I don't feel like going to church today. I mean, I know pastors never feel that way, but never. you know, I, it's like, I don't feel like going today. I really, what I really need to do is rest. I really need some alone time. I'm actually starting to let my feelings control me. Right. And I should be going, you know, God's promised grace to me by his presence among his people, through his people. So my approach to, to the assembly is going to be a disciplined approach. Right, And as I exercise those spiritual disciplines, I think the core ones are word, prayer, and worship. God is using them to form my character and transform me in a way that prepares me for the spiritual battle. Right, It's, it's actually giving me the, the Christ-likeness I need so that in the moment of temptation, I actually am not depleted of strength. God's been building it in me so that I can say no to what I ought to say no to, and yes to what I ought to say yes to. That's the work of God's grace in me. It's not, it's not my strength, it's His. All right, probably, I think, maybe one or two more. So, right up here. So in session two, you talked about the concept of cultivating certain appetites. Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of implied that that's where desire is kind of increased or comes from. And so my question is, um, if, you, if you didn't cultivate any appetites, would you have zero sexual desire? And if not, then what do we tell the unmarried people that right. have to go for years or a decade without any outlet for that? Yeah, I'd say no to the first question, right? Because we're, we have a sin nature. <laughs> So we, we will have sinful desires, right? Those, those, those are there. And, uh, and then I would say, we, because we are um, we're embodied persons, we are going to have desires, right? I, don't, I, don't, I never had to cultivate an appetite for food, right? I, my body needs food, right? I don't. I, there are certain aspects of that that are the case, and so, um, no, we're fallen, 
right? So, so we have to be careful about generalizing, but as a general principle, something happens to us when we pass through puberty that produces desires, right? So, so I don't think we're not, we should not conclude that the desire uh, for um, natural things is sinful, right? But we are, we are told not to cultivate illicit desires, right? We, we can feed the wrong kinds of desires or we can feed a desire uh, that is uh, currently wrong, right? So I'm at, and I'll just leave it to you guys' judgment whether I'm wise in this or not, but when I, when I do premarital counseling, I always, I always warn the couple, right? God, God's made us, right? If you, if you think of this as like a pyramid, um, the peak of the oneness is the physical. It's not the sum of it, but, but there is a, a one flesh aspect of it that is exclusively for marriage. But we would want a couple to be making their way toward that un- that that oneness in uh, in thoughts and belief and and so so I I urge them to spend time making sure they're of one mind <laughs> and one heart, right? And and ultimately the physical element would be toward the top of it. And here's the warning I give them that that actually probably was a lot easier in cultures with arranged marriages because someone said, you're going to marry you, right? Then they had to start toward the process. But in our culture where that's not normally the case, at least at some degree, the attraction starts with physical and personality related issues, mm-hmm. right? They don't, they don't look, man, you're abhorrent, but I want to marry you. <laughs> Right. They're, they're, I mean, if they're thinking that, I generally tell them we need to sort of take a couple steps backward. Right. At some point, he's thinking she's attractive physically and personally. He she thinks the same thing. Right. So that means the top of the peak has come down to the bottom. And now we're saying, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Right, because the physical attraction will get stronger the closer they get to the point of marriage. Right, so I even tell them in the pre-marital, and so you you need to be really careful not to stoke that flame, so that it bypasses the development of the oneness that is supposed to lead into that. And I will say something like, I've never met a couple yet that once they've started the process of physical entanglement, would rather sit down and talk. <laughs> right? I mean, it bypasses it. They'd rather make out than have deep philosophical discussions. And, and so now, the, actually, the, the platform of the oneness is starting to get weakened. And you get people who get married because they're, they're in love, and they find out on the other side of the covenant that they have fundamental disagreements about the nature of marriage, the roles and responsibilities and all that stuff. So, but so that's a long way to come back and say their desire for the one flesh relationship is not inherently sinful. But if they're not careful, they can feed that in such a way 
that it now increases pressure and starts to bypass God's timing. That was a part of what my point was, is that, that you can, you can uh, start to cultivate desires that you should not have at all, or cultivate desires that cannot be in a godly way fulfilled. Right? And, and two unmarried people desiring to have sex with one another, if it can't be fulfilled in a godly way, is going to be a problem. And that, that was what I was driving at, really, was we've got to be very cautious about it. We're not, though, born like a, a blank slate of desires. So, and, and sometimes, uh, so that's where I would go back to the earlier question about the orientation, desire stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually object to the fact that, that um, the fall may produce disordered desires, Right, that, but that doesn't that doesn't lessen the culpability of act, you know, harboring them and acting on them. Right, so, so, but we're on the front wave of that, right? I, I, somewhere out here on this East Coast, some judge uh, ruled in a way that was going to grant uh, polyamorous relationship, right? So, so you can have more than two people in a marriage. Right, because some people say, "Well, I just I can't just love one person." That's what polyamor poly's many, a more amorous love. So I I just can't I can't love just one person, right? That's just not the way I am. I mean, you know, that's not it. So now it's their orientation, right? And so if you've already started the process of granting legitimacy to people's orientations, uh, where's where's the check on that? Right? I mean, where, where do you go? Well, that one might be just a little too far. And I think we, I think the answer isn't to go, um, you know, isn't to necessarily get sucked into a rabbit hole with whether they desire it or not, but to pass God's judgment on the desire. Well, yeah, you may desire a same sex relationship, but that doesn't make it acceptable. It's sinful. You may desire to have multiple partners, but that doesn't make it acceptable, right? God says, one man, one woman, right? So I think that's what we've got to push back with God's standard and recognize that in a culture that has denied the authority of God, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, we're going we're gonna to be cross-grain on that one. Yeah. I think there was one more. Yeah, one, one more back there. Or maybe, maybe more than one. One more. There is more, but if you talk long, you'll be here. Yeah, that's what I told him. It's not the questions; it's the answers that are yeah. the problem. In your discussion, you talked about, you know, sort of the distinction between putting—I would refer to it as hedges, right—and and, and legalism. And would you say that some of the hedges that we should be setting in the, with a theme of purity would be uh, purity in thought of the Godhead, of understanding who God is? In, and then the purity of the scripture and that it's fully sufficient in God's word and then coming into the purity of our affections for our desire and worship uh, for God, that those would be good temperature to take our temperature or sort of on those yeah, as, th- as well we walk for purity and sexual relationships. Right. I, I definitely, I would not, 
I wouldn't argue against any of those. I mean, I suppose some of them might come down to how we define them. Um, part of what I would say is, I, I so there was a kick. I mean, I think we go back and forth on these things, right? So, so um, it used to be common to call it, talk about standards, right? Well, you need to, you need to set standards for your life so you don't, you know, you don't sin against God. And and I've never actually accepted the premise that that is legalistic, right? I I would say uh, it could possibly tilt toward Phariseeism, right? If you're pegging your righteousness on you know your appearance, right? Um, or it could become uh, you're overstepping the boundaries of other people's consciences. Right? Uh, but I think the the wise way to navigate the Christian life is to recognize places where we need to establish guardrails, I think was a word you used. And those are going to be different, right? I mean, I, I'm trying to remember it right now, but I, mean, I did a series in Romans 14 years ago, and, and one of the things I want to answer in there is why do, why do good godly believers come up with different convictions? Why do they have different convictions about things? Right, and part of it is not all have the same knowledge of God's word. Right, so so basically, there may be someone do, hasn't actually wrestled with some truth in Scripture yet, and and therefore they either have a, erected a uh, you know an unwise standard, or they actually have said, oh, I think there's a standard I need to put in place here. Right, so we don't have equal knowledge of the Scriptures. We actually don't have all the same. Uh, temptations, right? So, so some people uh, sense an inherent susceptibility to something, and so they're like, "I need, to, I need to make, I need to put a barrier here so I don't cross that." Right? Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing for them. The problem is when then you know, let, let's say, say I feel a certain susceptibility, and therefore I say this is not going to be a part of my life. And then I look at, at Terry and say, and if you love Jesus, it's got to be a part of your life too. Right? That's where the problem would be. Right? Or the problem would be if he looks at me and goes, well, you're just an immature believer. Right? Because if you were mature, you wouldn't have to set up that standard. Right? That, that, both those attitudes would be wrong. The issue is I'm supposed to do what I'm do out of faith. <laughs> All right? And so if I'm concerned about something in my life, then then it would make sense for me to put in a guardrail to be cautious about it, right? And I think what we end up doing is, um, you know, we, 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 we want one size fits all, right? So, you know, so, um, you know, let's say a guy who struggled with, with pornography might come to a conclusion, you know what, I will not watch any entertainment in movies and TVs that have even the slightest hint of anything inappropriate because they see it as a, 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 as potentially a gateway for them that would be a problem. And another person who's actually never struggled with that is not, not necessarily uh, as aware of that because they're not, that's not been a fight they've had. Whereas, I mean, I mean, I said the other day I was playing golf with a guy and they were talking about uh, CBD gummies, you know, the marijuana stuff. And the one guy says, "Yeah, you should, you know, you should try it." To the other guy, these not believers, right? So, and the one guy goes, "You know," he said, "You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I don't even want to come near him." 
He said, it's not, I know it might not be a problem, but I'm just afraid because I know I, lo I lost control with reg regard to a substance. So, I mean, that's like, I'm listening and I'm thinking, that's just like common grace wisdom, right? If I have a propensity towards some problem, I would set up a guardrail against it. And why would Christians come along and say, well, you're not trusting on the Holy Spirit? Well, what if it actually was the work of the Spirit to produce this conviction in your heart? How is that not the Holy Spirit? Right? I mean, why, do we actually think the Spirit is, is not using the Word to sensitize the consciences of God's people? I think the, I think the Scriptures don't tell us to uh, go hyper on standards or hyper against them. I think they call us to be wise and live in this world trying to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul. And if that means, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to stay away from that. Mm. Right? We're not going to, we're not going to, we don't want to let that in because we, we just have real concerns about it. And praise God. Right? Um, if someone else has some sense of freedom in that area, then, then I think the scriptures would say, then, then have that uh, you know, to the glory of God and don't let your good be spoken of evil because you, you're, you're trying to make your supposed strength you know, the, the standard for everybody. Mm -hmm. We just need to have a little more room for the work of God in other people's lives, I think, at times. Without that meaning, you know, chill out, because right? that's sometimes the way it's going. You know, like I, I, I come from a fundamentalist background. I am a fundamentalist, but you know, but from a, a more conservative stance. And sometimes what's happened is people who slingshot out of that basically run from why, uh, past wisdom to foolishness. Right, they they and and they're they're reaping the harvest of it because it's it's just uh, it's just so easy to deceive ourselves and not be careful about the influences in our own heart or those that we're responsible to lead. Right, so you know, I'd rather be unpopular with all my with my kids and keep them from you know running running straight straight into the wickedness right well brother thank you thank you for your heart how you shared your heart and just the way in which you have graciously handled the subject and taken us down the road that we needed to think through and the way the lord would have it well, thanks for the privilege would you do us a favor and pray for us Absolutely. right now and then tim you can come up and lead us in a song and then i'll make a few closing comments for us afterwards. certainly all right thanks Father, we come with gratefulness in our heart that you uh, provided mercy for us in your Son, that you sent him into the world so that we might have life through him, that he would be the propitiation for our sins, because we know if we tried to atone for our sins, uh, we would be without hope because we are sinners. Mm -hmm. But he is perfectly righteous. Mm -hmm. He fulfilled every command of yours, even to taking the penalty for us breaking them. Mm. And we praise you for that. Mm -hmm. We know our only hope of standing before you is if we're clothed in his righteousness mm. and what a hope it is. 
Because if we have been justified, who can condemn us? Mm -hmm. And if Christ is our intercessor, who can ever separate us from you? So we want to make certain that the bedrock of our heart is there. And because you have done these great things for us, we want to live in a way that shows you honor, that, that appreciates the depth of Christ's sacrifice. And, and because we see that, we also see the ugliness of sin, mm -hmm. how it dishonors you and has constantly wreaked havoc and destruction over lives. So we don't want to play with it. We don't want to tolerate it in our lives. We don't want to be entangled in it. So, Lord, motivate us by your Spirit through the Word to heed your promises, to hold you in such high regard that, that we hate evil, that we want to walk in Christ-likeness. And so help us not to engage in those sins which, which represent the defilement of our flesh and spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would help us to guard ourselves from these things, to have uh, humble repentance when we sin and run to the cross because of Christ and his forgiveness for us. And I pray that you'd strengthen us all and strengthen us together. May you help us uh, with one heart and one mind to seek to glorify you and pursue Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.